Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with theater journalist and author Barry Singer. More than a decade and a half ago, Barry released his oral history book, Ever After, about the previous quarter century of the tumultuous decades of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the early aughts on Broadway. This month, a new edition has been released, adding incredibly insightful detail to the last 17 years up until the pandemic shut down the New York theater. We discussed the epic 2003 season with Wicked and Avenue Q, the importance of rent on the evolving artistic ethos of Broadway during that time period, the optimism that artists and producers feel for the future of the industry, and much, much more. Barry spoke with some of the biggest names in theater for this latest edition for the book, and their insights and firsthand experience are simply unmatched. We will have information on where you can get Ever After in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. It would make a great holiday gift for the theater lover in your life. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Barry Singer. Barry, the first version of Ever After was released in 2004, and it looked back over the previous quarter century of musical theater history. Right. Then <laughs> the pandemic hit 16-ish years later, um, and there was a whole new era of musical theater to kind of dive into. When things all shut down back in March of 2020, what what was it about that you know curtain, so to speak, um, that made you want to return to Ever After with an updated brand new edition? Well, it wasn't quite cause and effect. Um, people have been asking me in the theater community over the years um, if I was going to bring the book up to date. And um, I'd been encouraged to think about it. And then I mentioned it to my publisher and they were game. So I was underway when COVID appeared wow. and turned the lights out. It was totally um, a confluence of circumstances that I suddenly looked at the book that I was working on and thought, oh my God, this is an account of an, of an era that is ending. It's gonna start again in some new form, I feel, but this is a summation and it wasn't what I intended. Well, both the original version and this updated version are oral histories. You talk to so many uh, incredible artists and producers and writers and actors and all of those things to get the stories behind all of these shows. But in talking about this changing from the pre-COVID era to as we are just now starting to return in the post-COVID era, when you were doing some of these interviews during the past year and a half, was there a sense that things were changing in some way, even if it wasn't something that they could put their finger on? Just was was there a different footing for these folks as they were talking about shows that it either ended completely or would be returning or anything in between? Well, um, fundamentally, they were all in shock, as we all were, mm -hmm. and we didn't really know and don't really know what the future holds, but there is an optimism. Uh, I wrote the second half of the book with a great deal more optimism than I, than I wrote the first half of the book. Wow. Um, I felt that things were troubled um, along the way on Broadway um, as I watched, you know, money take really take over the system um, uh, beyond in, in any degree that it had previously the, during the first half. And uh, I was concerned about the future. Um, the second half, 
um, I found a lot to celebrate and there was a lot to be encouraged. Obviously, Hamilton leads the pack, but um, th there was more diversity. There was more young. Vo there were more young voices. There was an awful lot of money still, but I was hopeful. And when the pandemic hit, I have to say there's still a, a tenor of hope that um, Broadway will will and, and the, broad, the musical theater in general will will head in a, in a um, in a new direction as a result of this. And that's always exciting to think what will this do and how will the artists. Uh, respond to this. So as dark as this period has been, it's kind of a hopeful, like what, the, and almost an, an, an eagerness, like let's get going. What is the future going to hold? Yeah. There's that pent up excitement that all theater folks have, whether they are artists or journalists or uh, theater makers that that year and a half has been hard and, and people want to get back to doing what they love, whether that's watching or making theater. But to get back into the book, you the, the book, the, the new section is you kind of label it as act two and you start that act with that iconic 2003-2004 season, which I think, in, I think in large part, thanks to a, a PBS documentary, is probably, you know, the most intricately well-known season sure. of the 21st century. But in the chapters about Wicked and then um, some other shows and including Avenue Q, you talk with Stephen Schwartz and producer Jeffrey Seller about these two main shows. Um, and because we know so much about that season, I, I wonder if there was anything in these discussions that you were still surprised about, even as someone who has been engrossed in this community and probably knows Avenue Q and Wicked and their their roads to Broadway pretty well. But was there anything that was still kind of surprising that you learned in, in these chats about the shows? Well, um, it was interesting to me to realize that um, I, I didn't really understand that Stephen had struggled to secure the rights to begin with. Um, that was that came as a surprise. I thought that he read the book, decided that he wanted to do it. And as I as I write in the book, just by accident, I happened to be present almost at the at the conception uh, of Wicked because Stephen and uh, Joe Montello and Mary Rogers and myself, we were on a panel together uh, adjudicating the Larson Awards, listening to musicals and deciding you know, how the money would be, we would be sent out. And John and Stephen walked in one day um, for one of our sessions and um, announced that he had just read this phenomenal book that he was going to turn into a musical uh, described that as the backstory to the wizard of Oz told us, told us it was called wicked, told us we all had to go out and buy copies and read it right away. And then turned to Joe and basically said, um, why don't you think about directing this? I'd like you to direct it. And Joe said, I haven't I don't direct musicals. And Stephen said, you're going to direct this one. And that's so I, I saw yeah. that that happen. But um, which was not in any of these documents was not in the documentary. Obviously, uh, this was just something that I watched. So I went back to Stephen afterwards while I was working on the book to say to him, um, what happened next? And he and as you know, he told me uh, in, in great detail, I guess the only other thing that's really surprising and it's no surprise because we know what happened. But I still can't get over how Jeffrey Seller orchestrated uh, Avenue Q's victory that year in the Tony Awards. Um, it was really a, a brilliant strokes of showmanship. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a huge upset, as we all know. And um, I, it was really fascinating to have him lay out for me um, moment by moment, really, how they um, attacked um, in, 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 the, in the most positive sense, the, the other shows that they had to defeat to win, um, to win the Tony Award. 
Yeah, I, I, for me, a surprise in those chapters where I didn't realize that Demi Moore was going to play a part in the uh, in the history exactly. of Wicked. That's, that's it. <laughs> that you had Demi Moore was the obstacle that Stephen had to get around. Is kind of wild. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, going from there and and kind of diving into what is the next nearly two decades of musical theater in this second half um, of the book. What's interesting is you talked about this optimism for a different kind of Broadway and the different voices and the different types of shows and the shows that you chronicle in here. And obviously you make uh, reference to and, and discuss many more than just the big tentpole ones. But you do talk about the things um, like Light in the Piazza or Spring Awakening or even Fela and, um, and and Fun Home and these shows that lead up to kind of a different view of what Broadway was that even though those shows in a lot of cases made money, it did they weren't necessarily the money grabs that we were perhaps seeing at the end of the uh, of the 20th century. As you were starting to see that progress throughout the early part of the 2000s as you're talking to all of the folks that were a part of those shows, was that more about changes in the audience? risks by the producers a a a changing winds uh in terms of the art uh, of the you know the artistic vision of of musical theater or what led to some of these shows that seem like their risks on paper actually becoming really important parts of the musical theater landscape well um rent the, yeah. the, the bottom line is that Rent showed producers that you could take chances on an unknown composer and music that really had not made it on Broadway uh, since Hair um, and represent a diverse community on the stage um, with every possible configuration of um, you know racially and sexually um, and make and and score a huge hit. Um, once that would, um, it, it wasn't that everybody set out to then do rent, but I think it gave a lot of younger producers, especially, um, the, the, the encouragement to take chances. And once you start taking chances, obviously, um, you know, the, the percentages are against you, but there you know, again and again, these producers, um, found young talent to support, um, took chances on them. And, um, in, in a number of cases, um, you know, scored big. Obviously, as you said, they weren't money grabs. Um, there was there was there was easier money to make than you know betting on Caroline or Change or um, uh, you know most of the shows that I document uh, the band's visit. But those were producers who were passionate about the material and were eager to try to um, to create a new bro- new new kind of Broadway musical. And I, I think it all stems from Rent, though. I do think that that showed them the way. And then Hamilton was the the, the thundering seal of approval on chance taking. Um, you could you could uh, the, the show today looks like a no brainer, like it you know it, it was it's the biggest hit of all time in some respects. But that took a lot of guts early on um, for Jeffrey Sellett to back. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda in, in his journey, which he documents, I think, in the book very, very beautifully, um, the ups and downs of getting Hamilton to Broadway. 
And, and of, if, of course, it's not perhaps not a surprise that Jeffrey Seller is a through line for a lot of those shows back to Rent and even Avenue Q in Hamilton. And obviously there's a lot of other producers um, along the way um, who have done that. But that is an interesting through line. And um, you mentioned in, I guess, the last chapter or the afterword um, of the book um, how important Jonathan Larson's influence has been on Broadway and musical theater in general, and obviously you um, were a friend of Jonathan's and on the you know involved with the the Jonathan Larson Awards. Obviously, you talked about how that has changed musical theater and given people the license to take changes. But um, can you speak to just a, a a little bit about who Jonathan was and how that ethos um, has been carried on? Because people know Rent, but I don't think people really know. Jonathan Larson and 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 how that spirit of of kind of doing things his own way has been manifested in the the legacy of his of, of his shows. Well, um, you know, I I actually wrote um, a brief chapter outlining how I met Jonathan for the book and decided to cut it because it just hmm. didn't seem pertinent to the story I was trying to tell. And I felt that was like deflecting the, the, the attention to me personally in a way that I was didn't, I just thought sort of threw the balance off. But I met him um, in a very odd and wonderful accident where um, I think it was 1992 and the Stephen, there was a Stephen Sondheim uh, birthday concert at Carnegie Hall. And um, mm-hmm. I got a single ticket from uh, Sondheim's office um, to see the show. And I, I sat down at my seat and a few minutes later, a guy came into the aisle and sat down next to me. And he had also gotten a single st- seat from Stephen Sondheim. And um, he kind of looked over at me with a glint in his eye and said, how'd you get your ticket? And I said, what I, you know, I, I got it through, through Sondheim. And he said, so did I. And we were friends instantly from that moment on. Wow. And I took him to uh, buy him a drink at the bar um, at intermission. And he just told me that um, I'm a musical theater composer and I'm writing a, a rock opera now. And I know it sounds pretentious, but you got to come down and hear it. Um, and he knew I, you know, I talked about the fact that I was, you know, I wrote about musical theater. So we were obviously kindred, kindred spirits. And a few days, a few nights later, um, I went down to his um, kind of crazy loft apartment and um, he sat me down between two big speakers, turned out all the lights, handed me a script and, you know, a small light, you know, set, turned out a lamp at my feet and uh, switched on tapes of the whole show and played it for me. Um, John had been working on Rent for a very long time, even at that point. Um, he was, you might say, a, um, a, a continually um, uh, aspiring musical theater composer who had, who had received some small attention and some awards, but really had not sold anything and not had anything produced. Um, he was working at the Moondance Diner, as probably a lot of people know, uh, to support himself and wrote, as he told me, um, a song a day. And when I said, um, uh, th- that seems a little, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an awful lot to, to shoot for. Um, and he said, um, well, you know, why not? Brahms did it. So John had a, vid, a vision of himself that was rather large. Um, uh, Rent was, an, was extraordinary when I heard it, but I was also kind of lost trying to follow it. It was, you know, it was all over the place, but the music was staggeringly beautiful and compelling. 
And then I just watched him struggle to get the show on. And over the years, uh, with readings and workshops here and there, um, develop it, um, but also struggle with the idea of turning 30 and the idea of whether he could continue, how long he could continue to sustain this sort of bohemian existence. And, um, uh, you know, I know Tick, Tick, Boom is coming out soon as a film. Lin-Manuel Miranda's directed. And... um, that that that's a very accurate depiction that by Jonathan himself of the st- his state of mind uh, heading into his thirties. Obviously, tick tick boom is also a terrifying metaphor for what happened to him. Um, he died of a of a um, aortic aneurysm on the night before the final dress, just after the final dress rehearsal, I think of of Rent um, down at the New York Theater Workshop. So. Um, John was an explosion in my life. He turned into a terrific friend. We obviously shared a lot of the same uh, taste in musical theater, and we ran around and saw a lot of shows together. And I, he, he would call me up and leave um, new songs on my answering machine, which he did with a lot of his friends. Um, and his loss was devastating. But I have to say that everything that has happened subsequently is almost what John predicted for himself. It's what he said he was going to do. He was going to turn Broadway inside out. He was going to make musical theater relevant again. He was going to bring um, pop and rock music to the musical theater. And he achieved all of that. Jeffrey says it in, in the, um, yeah. in the afterward, you know, everything that he imagined came true. It's just the, the tragedy he was missing. And I even met Jeffrey at Jonathan's apartment. Um, John would have uh, yearly gatherings at Thanksgiving called peasant feast where everybody was invited to bring uh, a dish and something to read aloud, which everybody had to stand up and read something. And it was a performance, you know, a piece of performance art with uh, dinner, the- dinner theater style. Um, and he introduced me uh, to Jeffrey and Kel- Kevin McCollum, uh, Jeffrey's partner. And I should, I should point out that Kevin was a partner in, in a great deal of what Jeffrey, uh, it was the of two course, of them yes. working. Um, Avenue Q was the, 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 a team uh, effort. Um, and these were two young guys who said to me that uh, this was long before Rent was had been picked up anywhere, that they were going to produce Rent one day and that they were going to uh, take a Broadway theater, uh, have it completely turned into a performance space with, with graffiti art and bringing artists in. And, and they were going to run with Rent. And John was, of course, ecstatic. And I looked at them and I thought, how? <laughs> how are you going to do this, guys? But I, I mean, I love them for their for their enthusiasm. But I have to say, again, to their credit, they did exactly what they said they were going to do. That's an incredible story. And I almost feel like that could be a, a whole book on, on its own, because that is fascinating for someone like me who grew up in the the age of rent. It, that's uh that's just it's such a wonderful thing. I got goosebumps hearing that story. But um, to kind of move forward, and you know, in the book, you talk about um, some of the shows that quite possibly could not have happened had rent not happened. And two of them are two of the last handful of, of shows that you really chronicle um, in this second act of the book in Natasha Pierre and the Great Common of 1812 and Town. And you speak with director Rachel Chavkin from both of those shows. Um, and I think that's really apropos because I think she is very much um, a, a going to be a big part of the future of this next evolution um, of Broadway. And 
what I I loved your description of of Hades Town, and and I agree with it. While it's not perfect, you say it's quote it quote possessed a forward thinking aesthetic and a gut bucket panache, and that forward thinking aesthetic really kind of shown to me earlier when you said that you've got this um, sense of optimism where you were talking to folks about what could be when um, Broadway and musical theater finally returned. Obviously, we are starting to see the beginnings of that return. And so far, for the most part, it's been shows that had either been um, already in the works or already running. Um, so we haven't seen in terms of musical theater a ton of new things. But as we start to get moving forward, um, do you do you see that optimism leading to more things like this? Or where is that optimism moving towards in your mind um, for what could be the future of musical theater? Well, you know, I think Rachel's comments at the end of the book are extremely prescient and and wonderful talking about the changing of the guard and the younger generation and the fact that women um, we're going to have a large, we're, we're already having a large say in the future of Broadway. And, and Janine Tesori is another uh, artist who I spoke to who had phenomenal things to say, although Janine pointed out, and I thought it was excruciatingly true, and now the pandemic has only made it even more painfully true, that the, the, um, the Broadway aesthetic right now is grounded in loss and pain that the, you know, the, the AIDS epidemic deprived Broadway of such so much of its yeah. future. And then, um, and then Jonathan came along and you know, reoriented things to a degree, and then we lost him instantly. And now you can add to that, although it, you know, I, I left, I, I intentionally stopped the book at the pandemic and didn't get into, you know, what was what was already beginning to happen. But the losses from the pandemic have been, you know, horrific, you know, and and um, and Michael Friedman we lost. So there's a lot of loss here, um, but from loss comes rebirth, and um, that's what you have to hope for in the future is that. They, these these women, uh, obviously, the racial reckoning that's that's occurred during the pandemic has been a wonderful thing for Broadway. I think um, if there's anything that runs through the book, along with the hope in the second section, is my tremendous frustration again and again uh, with race, racial. I don't want to say racist, but racially um, uh, unenlightened. Uh, choices that Broadway has made again and again um, over the last 20 years. Um, and Fella is, was just one example. I just thought that it was the most extraordinary piece of musical theater. Mm -hmm. It was dramatic as hell. The choreography was, was exquisite. The music was unlike anything we ever heard. It, it just blew the doors out of the place. And, um, and you know, Memphis won the Tony Award. Um, which was a, you know, a shiny um, but derivative piece of musical theater um, with its own racial agenda that I thought was very wan and sort of signifying towards, but not really about anything. And then Fella was, you know, was patted on the head with you know, a few nominations, but they gave the award to Memphis. So, so I was very frustrated by that. And I think there's hope in the fact that we've had this racial reckoning um, that I hope will continue. And um, if you want a name that I would point to the future, Michael R. Jackson is the name. Yeah. Um, you know, his strange loop was really smashingly original and exciting and um, and won the Pulitzer Prize, for God's sake, which is just an, ex an extraordinary thing. 
and um, I believe is coming to Broadway in the future. I think it's on the road now, maybe in D.C. Yeah, D.C. at Woolly Mammoth, I think, uh, is where it's going to be first. And um, there's tremendous that's a tremendously hopeful uh, star to, to, for us to, you know, to, to latch on to Michael R. Jackson and see what he does next. Yeah. Well, I will um, wrap this up by, with one final question. You talked to so many great people for this second act of the book. You mentioned Janine Tesori and Rachel Chavkin, but also uh, Billy Porter and Audra McDonald and, and Laura Benanti and, and Julie Taymor and, and Jason Robert Brown and more. Um, I'm, I'm curious as an interviewer and a journalist, when you were talking to these folks um, about the different shows uh, that you were chronicling, especially as you were talking to them, perhaps during the pandemic, did you get different types of responses from them than you perhaps might have from talking to folks um, who hadn't necessarily been a part of the shows you were discussing for a decade or two? Was there uh, were their memories a, a little fresher or more specific, or perhaps were they perhaps a little more guarded um, about what they wanted to share if the shows were still running or anything like that? I think that, that no, the answer is no to that question. And you use the word guarded. And I think the most extraordinary thing about everyone that I spoke to for this book was how unguarded they were. They were very open to reassessing and looking back at what they'd done and look forward at what they hope to do. And I, a lot of them were very candid about their mistakes, about the things that they wish they had done better. Um, you know, Thomas Schumacher, who runs Disney uh, Theatrical, uh, was extremely candid with me talking about the, 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 you know, not only the successes, and obviously Lion King was, was the greatest success and, and choosing Julie Taymor for it but of you know the, the 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 tragedy of tarzan and the you know the kind of disaster of little mermaid he was very open to to run through for me all the decisions he thought he had made that were wrong in, you know, in reflecting yeah. on them and what it, what comes through ultimately is how very difficult it is to make a, a, a great musical and make a successful yeah, musical. Absolutely. That even the best people with the best intentions and in, and in his case, unlimited resources can still screw it up really badly. And when it does come together, those rare moments are so precious, you know, beyond beyond rubies and beyond dollars um, to put up to make a musical come to life. And, and inspire people with it is very, very hard to do. Yeah. And I think that's why we all continue to go back to the theater. And I, I don't have the book in front of me, but I think at the, one of the quotes you include at the very beginning is something like, uh, everybody loves musical theater. And even if they say they don't, they're lying because when it's really good, uh, it can be life changing. Of course, when it's really bad, it can be, you know, downright you awful. Blow up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's exactly right. I mean, and it's, it's great that someone like Tommy is, is willing to kind of go into the ups and downs because as we all know, uh, nothing is guaranteed despite all of those money grabs we talked about earlier, nothing is guaranteed to work on stage and uh uh when it does though it is it is certainly something special so um barry the book is is absolutely fascinating and i'm so glad you returned to it and um any any thoughts about how long it will take you to maybe get to an act three of ever after <laughs> well I'll, i'm gonna start on that next week by going to some shows <laughs> great i want to i want to see flying over sunset i can't wait i'm very curious about it 
Yeah, absolutely. That one uh, definitely seems like a very different type of show than we are used to seeing. So uh, I'm very excited to hear about that one, too. So, well, Barry, thank you so much. Um, We, of course, will have all the information where people can can get this new edition of Ever After. um, And we'll make sure everybody has that. But thank you so much for chatting and uh, have a great time back at the theater. The same to you. Safe and healthy.